Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Capture Anthropology podcast. I'm Alanis, and I'm your host, and you can find me at Capture Anthropology on Instagram or at CaptureAnthropology.com. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Hafsa Zayan, author of We Are All Birds of Uganda, her recent debut novel, and winner of the Hashtag Murky Books New Writers' Prize 2019. Um, I would really like to ask you to introduce yourself and introduce the book and tell us a bit more about you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Hafsa Zayan. Um, I am a dispute resolution lawyer who wrote a novel in their spare time called We Are All Birds of Uganda. Uh, my personal background is that I'm a mixed race Pakistani and Nigerian, which is quite an unusual mix, South Asian and, um, and West African. Um, and my story is all about um, South Asians in Africa as well. But this, this story focuses on East Africa um, and the expulsion of South Asians from Uganda, particularly in, in 1972 by Idi Amin. It sounds, it sounds so exciting. Um, I'm really, really happy to have you on today. Um, I mean, first, I'd like to ask you a bit more about your own identity. As you mentioned, you have mixed heritage yourself. Um, and I'd really like to ask you a bit more about how, I mean, especially in the writing process, but generally how you kind of engage with that identity and how it's influenced what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I grew up in, in the UK. So, uh, well, I was born in the UK, uh, but I grew up kind of all over the world. So I, I lived in Saudi Arabia. I lived in the States and then came back to the UK when I was about nine years old. And um, even when we moved back to the UK, I moved quite a lot. So this idea of home um, and belonging um, and that sort of combined with my own mixed heritage where in my family and in my circles and in my communities, me and my siblings were the only ones who were of this unusual mix because people within you know, the, the Pakistani community tended to marry within the Pakistani community and people within the Nigerian community married within the Nigerian community. So my family was quite unusual and, and that brought with itself, you know, brought, brought with itself a, a whole bunch of its own challenges. Um, but on top of that, I was obviously an immigrant um, or, or a second generation immigrant living in the West um, and, you know, kind of with that additional moving around as well. So all of these themes about identity and belonging and home and, and what home really means um, were, were themes that were very close to my heart and uh, very sort of dear to me. Um, and formed a massive part of my personal journey as as a kind of you know second generation immigrant growing up in in the UK, um, and so all all of these tied in to to when I sat down to write my my first novel, it was quite easy to pull from my own experiences, um, you know things to write about, even though the book isn't about my specific experience. Yeah, I mean um, the book so far has been really interesting because it kind of flashes back between sort of um, the past and, and now. Um, and it's quite obvious that the characters have that mixed heritage as well. Um, something I'd really like to touch on in, in this episode is you did a lot of research, I understand, on the Ugandan Asian expulsion um, for the book. And I'd really like if you could maybe explain a bit more about what that actually was, because I know up until discovering your book, I didn't even know that existed. 
Yeah, to be honest, I was exactly in the same position as you um, when I started writing the book. And in, in, in as much as I'd never heard the story of the South Asian um, expulsion from Uganda, despite being half South Asian, half African myself, um, you know, my family from West Africa, they were they were kind of uh, migrants to West Africa. It wasn't it wasn't immigration in the sense of intending to move to a place with the with a with the intention of staying there on a permanent basis. Um, and, and, and the, you know, that's what the South Asians in Uganda did. Whereas my mother's family with Pakistani ones, they, they weren't sort of intending to move to Nigeria with the, with the intention of, um, creating a permanent home there. They were just there temporarily whilst my grandfather, um, worked as a teacher. But I mean, of course they ended up staying there for, for 25 odd years and my mom was born and raised there and, 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 you know, these kinds of things happen. But, um, the, 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 the uh, East African Asian story, I didn't know any East African Asians. Um, and so it was just a story that I didn't know anything about, even though I have, you know, friends from South Africa who are, who are South Asian and obviously a lot of um, family members and friends who are West African, South Asian, but East Africa, I didn't know. And then my, I met my husband and he's um, South Asian Ugandan and he introduced me to the story. I met his family who told me about their experiences of the expulsion um, and, you know, I thought it was just a really interesting, fascinating part of history and a very kind of sad thing that I hadn't known anything about it, despite my background. And when I spoke to my friends and, you know, my peers, they didn't know the story either, um, unless they happened to sort of be from that particular background or have, have friends from that background. And so, you know, when, when, the, when, the, when it came to writing the book and, um, you know, the book was Book was published through through Murky Murky Books, um, and it was it was uh, published through this uh, the New Writers Prize, which is a competition um, where you sort of submitted your your kind of extract of the book, and then um, they judged it based on that. And the tagline for the for the competition entries was "Tell stories that aren't being told." So I thought this was the perfect story to tell. Um, but it did involve from that point me doing a great deal of research into into the um, South Asian Ugandan expulsion, because like I said, my experience and knowledge of it was very tangential at that stage. It had just been a few discussions with my in-laws, essentially. Um, in terms of what I actually did, um, obviously continued those discussions with my in-laws. My in-laws read the manuscript. Um, my, my uncle-in-law in particular read the manuscript and, and provided comments before it, before it went to the publisher, um, which was very helpful. It hit, obviously, their experience as one experience. There's actually a great deal of information out there, a really a massive amount of information. There's actually a bibliography at the end of the book, uh, which probably has about 50 to 60% of the sources that I consulted when I was um, writing the book. So it's just a sample, but you can see it's, it's quite lengthy already. Um, there are oral history projects being conducted by universities like Carleton in, in Canada, because there was a significant portion of, of the South Asians who went to, um, who went to Canada after the expulsion. Um, and so it's fascinating. The oral history project is actually really fascinating because you get to hear the personal stories of all of these individuals and how the expulsion affected them on a personal and human level. Um, there's also the academic side of it, of course. You know, there was the, there's um, the, the sort of breach of international law angle uh, when you talk about the kind of, um, you know, the effect of making somebody stateless in the way in the way that was done. Um, and so there was a lot of academic commentary and research um, to, to be done there. And because of, my, because of my background as a lawyer, that was quite easy for me to tap into. Um, I did spend <laughs> quite a few nights at the British Library uh, reading some of the denser academic books that I wasn't going to buy. Um, and then, yeah, you know, also oh, YouTube. I mean, there, there's so much on, on, online in terms of 
actual video footage of, of what was happening at the time. There's a scene in my book later on, um, which, which I took directly from, from a clip that I watched online of the BBC going to uh, Uganda and interviewing people who were standing in the queue um, for the immigration office um, after the expulsion order had been announced. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot out there, but it's not something that's talked about really in the mainstream media. Mm. It's not something that we're taught in our national curriculums. So it, it just involves you taking it upon yourself to go and do that research and look into it. And I really hope that uh, after people finish reading my book, they will consult the bibliography um, and, you know, go on and do their own research and perhaps ask their own um, sort of, you know, family and friends if they know anyone with that background. Because there's a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I've been so interesting, even us talking about it now. And I mean, was it a case of literally like um, the South Asians that were living in Uganda at the time, they were literally essentially asked to go, asked to just leave? Um, do you know? Yeah, so the, the history of, of South Asians in Uganda, I mean, I don't profess to be a history or anthropo anthropological expert or anything like that, but um, just based on my understanding and my research uh, when, I, when it came to writing the book, the, the South Asians that were in uh, Uganda had been in Uganda for quite a few generations in some cases, um, because uh, as part of India being you know, an ex-British ex um, col colony um, and Uganda being an ex-British protectorate, there was a link there, and um, there was there was uh, the, the building of the uh, railway in Uganda, um, and there was there were other incentives that were offered by the British to have Indians um, come over from India to Uganda, and this all happened. You know, like I said, some had been there for generations by the time of the order. This all happened towards the end of the eighteen hundreds, uh, also possibly like the early twentieth century. Um, so you had these um, South Asians coming over and some of them were indentured laborers, like those who came to work on the railway. Others just came because there were incentives being offered by the British. So it made sense for them to go there and, and try to make money that way. That's the story that, that, that I focus on in my book. Um, and so you have them, you have them living there. You have them uh, moving there, like I was saying earlier, with the intention of permanently migrating there. You have them, you know, in many cases, cutting ties with, with India in the sense of all of their family will come over you know, people don't go back to India, they lose touch with, with India, and they raise generations of their family in Uganda. And this carried on um, until the British left Uganda, when Uganda got independence in 62. Um, and shortly after that, um, there, there, was a, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of tension between, between the uh, South Asians and the, the native Ugandan population, like the local population. And that tension had been born as a result of um, the British colonial policies that were in place at the time that the British were there. So what the British had done was they'd said, okay, Africans, you can, tr you can farm, you can grow cotton and whatnot, um, but you can't trade it. Uh, the Asians are going to be the traders and then they can export and they can trade the, the cotton and whatnot, whatever, whatever other industries at the time were, you know, there. Um, and then, you know, of yeah. course, we'll, 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 we'll take, nice little profit from from all of that and that's what that's the structure it was a sort of hierarchy like that um and what ended up happening is that the south asians ended up amassing a great deal of wealth very quickly um because they were in this you know unique position of being able to uh, effectively control a lot of the industries like the major industries like cotton and sugar and steel 
Um, and so you had, you know, huge, huge profits being made by the, the what was a relatively small South Asian community in Uganda um, with basically, you know, nothing being left for the local Ugandans in the sense that they weren't allowed to, to do the same thing. And so on independence, um, you know, there was a lot of tension. And what, what actually happened with the with the um with, with the expulsion order in 72 is just this just the year before the expulsion order there'd been a military coup and Idi Amin the the, the head of the army had, had taken over the governance of the country and um a year after he'd he'd sort of been in, in power he 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 said I don't like the fact that all of these South Asians are here in our country basically taking all of our resources and making money for themselves that they're not sharing with anyone else. Um yeah I want I want them gone. And so he he made this decree and he said, if you don't leave within the space of three months, I will put you in a concentration camp effectively. Um, and so that's 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 what happened. And they had to leave. And, they, you know, these people, like in many cases, they had nowhere to go because India didn't want to take them back. They hadn't been like I said earlier, they would had their ties cut with India. They didn't have any relationship with India anymore. Um, they you know, some of them had uh, British passports. Because what had happened on independence is the British had said, you can either elect to stay British and keep your British nationality, or you can elect to become Ugandan. Many of them became, most of them actually stayed British, but some of them obviously became Ugandan. And for those who had taken Ugandan citizenship, Idi Amin said, I don't care. You you can't, you can't stay anyway. So those were stripped. They didn't have British passports. They didn't have Ugandan passports. They didn't have Indian passports. They had nothing. So they were, they were effectively refugees and the United Nations had to take care of them. Um, that's and that's why you have this diaspora of South Asian Ugandans all over the world, because you have a majority, mm. a majority, significant majority came to England, those who had retained their British nationality. And, you know, at first, England was like, we're not taking them, we're not taking you. But after a few kind of weeks and, you know, international pressure, they had to relent. And basically, they took the the, the South Asian Ugandans who had British passports. So it was about 25, 26,000 uh, South Asian Ugandans coming to England in the 70s um, and then you had you know the smaller portion of those who had taken Ugandan citizenship and then basically had to you know basically go wherever the UN said a country was willing to take them so they were spread across Europe a bunch of them like I said went to Canada um, and so yeah you you have this huge diaspora because of because of um, because of that yeah I mean as you said before, I didn't learn any of this in school. Um, I'm sure most people didn't actually. Um, and so it's really interesting to, I know you said like you're not an expert in the area or anything, but you've at least had a bit more engagement with it than the average person. So I'm hoping your book and this episode help people to kind of research it a bit more and maybe ask some more questions about it. Um, I know I came across a really interesting BBC documentary, um, which is where I first kind of heard of even the phenomenon of this sort of South Asian Ugandan identity as one. Um, I'll see if I can find the link to it and put it in the description of this episode. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting hearing um, the research you've done, and it's it's such a yeah, it's a really interesting topic to think about, sort of how they just kind of had nowhere to go. <laughs> I'd really like to ask how that influenced the construction of your characters, because um, I heard you mention in another podcast episode um, about this sort of phenomenon of twice migration and this 
his relationship with migration around that and I'd really love to know how how easy or or how what kind of process it was to construct characters that had such complex identities yeah sure so I mean look like I said earlier um having a complex identity is part of my personal journey and my personal history anyway so creating these characters which had confusion and sort of crises and you know needed to go through a process of um, journey and discovery and um, education about themselves and their heritage um, was fairly easy for me in the sense that it was a personal story to me anyway these are themes that I've been dealing with my whole life um, so in that sense it, it wasn't difficult I mean the, the the phenomenon of twice migration which is you know it's essentially we're talking about the Indians who moved twice once from India to Uganda and then once from Uganda to the UK or wherever else they went um, it, you know, that's reflected in the dual narrative structure. So there's a dual narrative. Um, and, you know, like you said, right at the start of the podcast, one, one, uh, one part of the story is historical, one part of the story is set in modern day Britain. And, the, you know, small techniques like that, small devices like that, which all tie into the concept of twice migration and dual identities. Um, you know, and in, for some of these people, they have multiple identities. It's not just a dual, dual, dual thing. It's, you know, I am a, a British, um, you know, Ugandan, South Asian, you know, that's a triple, triple identity already, right? Um, you know, and also like I'm a Muslim, you know, all the, so there's, a, there's multiple ways in which, um, you know, you can sort of assess yourself and the prism through which we look through, look, look at who we are fluctuates in our lives. Um, and so that, that story of how it fluctuates is the story that's kind of told mainly in the in the modern day strand of the book. I definitely think that reflects really well in the book so far. Um, I haven't finished reading it. I'm about maybe a, a quarter of the way in. Um, but I'm, I'm really loving the sort of dynamic of past and future and already the exploration at the beginning of um, one of the main characters' identities um, being this sort of lawyer in London and having this sort of life that seems very separate from his life at home with his family. Um, I did want to know as well, obviously his profession is, he's a lawyer and he's in London. Um, was that a lot inspired by your own experience as well as, as a lawyer? I mean, look, to be honest, he could have been anyone, any, anyone involved in the rat race in London, because one major theme of the story is the, the idea of success. Um, and success was a very important theme for me to, to draw upon just because, like I was saying earlier, the South Asians had a, a vast, a, immense amount of success in Uganda. Um, and, and their story is kind of they came to the UK with nothing as refugees, literally penniless. And many of them have gone on to build up their own empires within the UK itself again. Um, so, you know, the, this idea of sort of like success running in the blood of the South Asian Ugandans is something that I really wanted to touch upon. And I wanted to consider the impact of that on their, you know, on their future generations, like on their children who don't have um, the same history. They haven't made the same sacrifices. They haven't started with nothing. They didn't come to this country as refugees. How does the fact that their parents have built up this, these, you know, hugely successful businesses from scratch impact on their senses of what it, you know, it means to be successful? And does it make them feel inadequate in any way? And so 
this concept of, you know, what is success and the rat race. And I mean, this is, Samir could have been, you know, an accountant or a banker or a consultant or anyone working, you know, in the city who's part of this rat race, you know, on a conveyor belt and just feels like they can't get off. Um, the reason he ended up being a lawyer is because I didn't have to do any more research. I was doing enough research already on the on the Hassan side of the story. I was not ready to start researching what you know day to day life in a you know in any of the other kind of professional industries in the city is like. It's something that I could write very easily and naturally because I've done it for the past ten years. So yeah, mm. yeah, that's it's so interesting because reading it, I think it obviously it is reflected that you have a really um in-depth knowledge of what sort of being a lawyer in London is like and I know for me for example I um, have always lived in the countryside most of my life um and so London seems very like separated from um the rest of England to me so it was it was really interesting kind of having a bit of an insight into what that is like what that kind of whole lifestyle is like and the concept of success you know success is a social construction and so it'll be really interesting to read on about this theme and see like how um how you've constructed success within the novel and how you explore what that means to different people um and sort of the identities that that go along with it um I mean, in terms of your own identity, do you think in your life that's played a role in how you see your own success or or has that always been kind of separate for you? Look, I think for me personally, um, success has always been a massive part of my identity um, because that's kind of how I was raised, to be honest. Um, I was always mm. raised to to understand that education was the the key to to success and education was the most important thing that a person could could possibly hope to sort of achieve with their life and that didn't just mean academic education but education in all of its senses you know educate worldly education education about other communities and and you know just every every form of education you can possibly imagine and so my parents were always very very encouraging of me to educate myself in in every possible way um, and obviously, particularly academically. And, you know, I, I've, I've written about this before, actually, for Elle, what it's like to to grow up, you know, as a, as a young person, always sort of achieving everything that you've wanted to achieve. And then you get to a point where you obviously don't achieve something or you don't get what you want. You don't sort of win the first time and, and what that feels like and how that feels like an identity crisis. Um, so, mm. so, yeah, completely, they're, they're very in, in, intrinsically linked for me personally. Yeah, and I mean, um, towards the beginning of the episode as well, you sort of touched on how you've travelled around a lot. Um, you've been in lots of different places and different countries at different times in your life. Um, and I'd love to know as well, like, do you think that played a big part in sort of your ideas of education? Like, was your family really... Um, really encouraging of you to learn about your own heritage as well as sort of um Britain and other people's heritage and the US as well you said you were in for a while yeah so look I I think what I've sort of learned over the years is that education starts at home um and you know this mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that it's it can be very unfair in our education systems because you can have somebody 
two people go to the same school and be taught the same thing but if you don't have the support at home um, and you don't have the the structures at home to to help that a person succeed or to help a person um, get the most out of get most out of what they're being taught at school um, the two the two children even if they're as bright as each other may not do as well as each other and so you know for me what I have sort of seen in my sort of short life is that education starts at home um, and that's something that my parents always in, encouraged massively I don't I don't think that that was the reason that we moved so much I mean the reason we moved so much was because of their jobs um, but mm. but um, but yeah it did it did help me um, to sort of learn more broadly about different cultures um, and obviously you know my own my own mixed you know mixed heritage just meant that I just grew up with two different cultures anyway um, and I think, you know, that, that, that's just always been a part of my life. I mean, the, the major effect for me of having moved so much is that I never considered any one place as my, my home. And I kind of always, you know, I, I never, there's not like a specific house, which I think, oh, that's my like home. Like that's my childhood home. Um, there's not a specific place, let alone country where I sort of think, oh, well, that's my home. Like, you know. For me, what it meant is that home became really who you loved and who loved you and, you know, who you were with. And that that was home for me. And it, home was no more than that. And now my home is, you know, I'm married, like it's just with my husband. And, you know, we're, we're renting a flat in central London. Like we don't, I don't sort of feel any net connection to the flat or even to, well, I do love London, to be fair. <laughs> like you said, it's its own little city within, within England, isn't it? Um, but mm. sorry, its own little country within England is what I meant. Um, but it's, um, but, but no, I feel, I feel like, well, home is where he is, you know, or where my family is. It's not, it's not a place for me. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it, that, that, that movement in my childhood of like sort of going around and around, I think it helped, helped sort of educate me about um what what it actually means as well to 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 feel like you belong somewhere and now I just feel like I belong with people who love me that's that's really relatable for for a start because I moved around a lot as well and I definitely relate to that but it's also really lovely it's really lovely um sort of idea I guess um I mean to sort of bring things back to the book um I did also hear that you know, as you said, you wrote this novel in your spare time whilst having quite an intensive job. Um, and I'd like to know a little bit about how you kind of balance this creative outlet, I guess, this writing of this book with such, yeah, an intense, an intense lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, look, it was very hard. I, I, I probably wouldn't <laughs> want to like do it again. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Yeah. I, I had, I, I would, I mean, I would, and I, hopefully can and could with the benefit of mm. more time I mean the thing the thing with this book was that I won a competition and they wanted to publish the book quite quickly after I'd won the competition so they gave me sort of six months within which to produce the first draft and um that obviously is that structure and was very unusual like that would that was not it wasn't sort of the norm and you know they when the competition was announced it was kind of expected that people who would be entering it had full novel manuscripts already and they were just sort of submitting an extract of their work whereas when I entered the competition I wrote my extract for the competition and then I didn't do anything on it again until I won so so it, it you know let's put it this way it was it was my own fault <laughs> that that I was in that situation um but yeah I had six months to write it and um I basically just made a lot of sacrifices to do it as in social sacrifices mm. um and you know time in terms of my all my evenings all my weekends 
holidays, just everything was devoted to, to trying to write the book. I mean, in the sense of what I do in my day job is very kind of, you know, you know, what I do in my day to day job, you know, it's quite objective and you just sort of write what you write and then you kind of know whether it's good, you know, if you have a good case or not. And, you know, because you know what the law is and you know how the facts apply to the law. But when you're writing fiction, it's just a whole different ball game because you write something and you might think it's great the day that you write it. And then you read back over it the next day and you just think it's absolutely awful. And so, you know, that there's a huge, of course, there's, fiction is completely subjective. And you can see that from, you know, what people take away from the book. Some people, you know, will absolutely love the Hassan narrative and think that that's the only story worth telling in the book. Other people will despise it and um, think that it's just pointless. And, you know, and so it's, it's, it's incredibly subjective. And so that made it even more difficult because I just never knew I was kind of waiting in the dark. I had no idea whether, it, whether or not anything I was writing was actually any good because I couldn't judge it objectively the way that I do in, in my job. Um, so, yeah, that was quite a challenge. Yeah. It was a challenge. Yeah, it sounds really challenging. I mean, I was thinking about it yesterday that, like, when you're writing, like, nonfiction or a report or, or something of that nature, you're just essentially taking what already exists and, and putting it into words, right? But with a fiction, you're, you're making it up as you go along. <laughs> you're creating a, an entire story, um, an entire world. Um, do you think that going forward, you'd, you'd write another book with similar topics or something or or do you think this is it for now <laughs> <laughs> well your qualifier for now is definitely <laughs> appropriate <laughs> I have ideas because the thing is once you start um you know and you've written something you and, and you read and you get that kind of itch to write again um, what I don't have is the itch to write anything in the space of six months again <laughs> and I don't know if I'll ever have that um, I would like to write another novel, certainly, but I'd like to take my time over it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Capture Anthropology. Over on my website, captureanthropology.com, you'll find all the resources mentioned in this recording, as well as links to buy Hafsa's novel, We Are All Birds of Uganda. If you enjoyed this free content, please consider joining our Ko-fi community for behind-the-scenes content, extra videos, and much, much more.